to Totalus Rankium. This week, the Norse Perspective Saga Thing. Hello and welcome to Roman Emperor's Totalus Rankium. I am Jamie. And I'm Rob and this is a strange episode, an interesting episode, a first in the world of Roman Emperors uh, because we've never had an interview episode before. No. Um, you already know who it is because it's probably in the title. It's Saga Thing. Hey. Hello. The Viking invasion has begun. Ah. <laughs> uh, if you've not heard Saga Thing before, then uh, why not? That's a good question. <laughs> What are you doing with your life? <laughs> exactly. I've definitely said go and listen to Saga Thing before. Uh, and this is Saga Thing. So, Andy, John, uh, introduce yourselves. Sure. Uh, well, I'm John Sexton. And I'm Andy Fringer. And uh, we're both medievalists and we have been friends since grad school. Right. And we're both at least nominally trained scholars <laughs> of medieval literature. Nominally. I, I thought you were going to say that we are nominally friends, John. Nominally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to commit myself here. We're uh, we're nodding acquaintances. Okay, all right. Yeah, well, we've met. Let's, let's yes, be clear on that. Yes, yes. Uh, we're both uh, working academics who love the sagas. Uh, I'm a professor of English at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts and a surprisingly competent juggler. Uh, <laughs> he is, actually. He can, he can juggle. How many bowls? Yeah, how many bowls, John? H- for how long? <laughs> <laughs> Depends on how many pints he's had. Any number you care to name, very briefly. <laughs> yeah, and I'm a, I'm a visiting assistant professor of English at the University of Mississippi right now. All very impressive. But I'm guessing the reason why most people have heard of you outside, say, your lecture theatres, uh, would be Saga Thing. So what is Saga Thing, and why did you do it? It's a deeply disturbing thought. <laughs> Uh, Well, mainly Saga Thing is an excuse for two friends to continue grad school conversations about the sagas. Yeah. Uh, These uh, sagas, uh, if you don't know, are these amazing medieval tales of feuds and survival and raiding and drinking and magic. And I mentioned drinking. Uh, They they tell stories that are mostly set in the 9th to 11th centuries in Iceland and all over the northern world. And it's a, this brilliant literature that few English-speaking people ever experience. Yeah. Uh, so Saga Thing is the two of us taking our decades of experience studying and teaching the sagas and throwing all of it out the window in favor of a podcast where we tell stories about Icelandic sagas, drink a bit, and then judge the sagas at something called the Saga Thing. We, uh, we award prizes for the best act of bloodshed, the best nickname, the cleverest piece of writing, things like that. And then we bring in the judgment of the court. We outlaw a character from the saga for his or her crimes, and then each of us chooses a thingman, a follower, from the remaining cast. Usually, uh, I pick the correct choice and Andy picks the other one. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't uh, think by the, that's not how I see it. Well, sure. Uh, by the time we've done all that, it's time to start the next story. So we, we used to say that Saga Thing is the best podcast about the sagas until someone else starts one. And now there actually are a few other people who are doing podcasts about the sagas, so I, I guess we're just the oldest one. Yeah. <laughs> still okay. That's still still, still, still right. pretty good. You're the uh, the only Viking podcast that rates things, though. Are we That's indeed? True. Correct. That's good. We, st- we still have that yeah. going for us. Well, I, I started listening to Saga Thing five five years ago, six years ago, four years ago. It was when we started Totalus Rankium, mm-hmm. almost yeah. the same week. Uh, I, About four years ago. I think I decided... I know, I'm going to do a podcast. And I grabbed Jamie and said, we're going to do a podcast. I've been listening to Rex Factor. But then almost the same time, uh, Rex Factor uh, mentioned that another podcast had been doing something similar, only with Viking Sagas. Shamelessly ripping them off, yes. 
Yeah, yeah. Yes. I thought, oh, well, if someone else is doing it, then I should totally shamelessly <laughs> rip them off. Um, but I didn't actually listen to you until we'd started, which I'm quite glad about. Because if I'd listened to Saga Thing first, I think I would have been slightly scared. Um, I've, I've often, quite often thought this, that Saga Thing and Totalis Rankium perfectly display what starting a podcast on the two different peaks of the Dunning-Kruger effect would look like. <laughs> um, I'm not going to know pursue what this. you're talking about. Okay. That's, didn't <laughs> yeah. know which one we were. That's funny. <laughs> no, J- Jamie and I thought, you know, what? how hard can that be? Let's, let's jump in. Uh, it's just history. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I thought... What we do is uh, we get you on and um, you could educate me and Jamie and our listeners uh, about some of those northern barbarians that I've been talking about for quite some but, time. But the what? Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're starting off with um, slurs, are we? How dare you? <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, actually, no, because what we're going to start off with to break the ice is a, a quick fire round of questions just so we get to know oh. you both a little bit more. All right. Uh, and then okay. we'll then we'll go into the, the meat of the podcast. So who wants to go first? Oh, boy. See, now I'm scared about this part. The 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 get to know you round. Um, I'll go first. I, think, go that's, go first. I think that's best. I okay. like to sit back and observe first. Okay, I've got uh, what have I got? Six six very small questions. Oh boy. Uh, okay. Either all questions. Is Andy in the isolation booth at this point? Uh, no, 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 he's got different questions. It's fine. Right. He can all listen right. in. So just go with your gut. No thinking. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. Ancient Romans or ancient Greeks? Greeks. Oh, oh, oh dear. <laughs> that's the wrong answer, John. And my wife's going to be very angry at me. God, that's... <laughs> I mean, uh, that that was a softball to begin with, I'll be honest. And I've already gotten it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Terrible. Never mind. Okay, question two. Mead or ale? Ale. Okay, yeah, no, I can go with, yeah, that. Go with that. Yeah. Norse Norway or Norse Iceland? Norse Iceland. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, Loki or Thor... Marvel. Marvel. <laughs> uh, Marvel <laughs> Thor. Mythology Loki. Okay. Uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. He's getting uh, a lot wrong. Oh dear. And uh, finally, the most important Baywatch or Knight Rider? Uh, Knight Rider. Okay. Okay. That one's right. <laughs> Good job. <Yeah. laughs> I brought it together at the end, did I? Yeah, ju- just about. <laughs> mm-hmm. P- pulled it round. I think our listeners have now made uh, their judgments on you. Um, so <laughs> I know I have. I can see. Now, I can now, see we- the judgment in Jamie's eyes. <laughs> He's not going to forgive me for Star Wars. Well, I'm judging. Well, we now go on to uh, Andy's round. Very similar questions, but I, I've okay. twisted them slightly. Uh-huh. Ancient Egypt or ancient China? Ooh, ancient China. Okay. Uh, Careful, Andy. If you get them wrong, you get judged. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Why not spirits? Ah, uh, spirits, of course. Good. Yeah, yeah. You, you're doing well so far. Uh, Norse England or Norse Island? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> um, uh, Norse England, I guess. It's a tough one. Okay. Well done. You pass. Loki or Thor, Old Norse version? Ah, uh, I'm going to go Loki, Old Norse version. Correct. Okay. <laughs> Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek, of course. Come on now. Oh, you good man. I'm a man of substance. You're just playing up to your audience. <laughs> Don't worry, Star Trek doesn't win with me. I think I've seen a handful of episodes and a really boring film. Well, that's why, Rob, you need to watch it. Uh, it's true. Okay, final one. Yeah. Magnum P.I. or Columbo? Uh, I have attempted a Columbo impression many times on the, the podcast. It's definitely Columbo. 
And would you like to do a Colombo impression now? I, I no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> oh, that, that, that was both your impression and an accurate uh, d- denial that you'd be doing one. So that was impressive. Yeah, sorry about that, everyone. Sorry, uh, Mr. Falk. Well, uh, I'm not going to say there was a winner or loser there, um, but anyone but listening there was. can... Well, if you're listening, you can make up your own mind who won or not. Um, and whoever you've decided won can be your favourite for the rest of the episode. That's how Ooh, it works. Wow. Yeah. yeah, so there we go. We'll see what we can do about that, right, John. Yep. <laughs> I feel confident I can turn them against me. <laughs> I feel confident I can turn them against you, too. Um, right, okay. Well, let's... let's uh, Let's talk Norse, shall we? Well, we, we've covered a lot of what the Romans simply call the Northern Barbarians mm-hmm. uh, throughout two series of our podcasts, 130 mm-hmm. odd episodes now. Oh, wow, that was a big bolt of lightning by my house there. The last time we did an interview, there was a storm going on, wasn't there? <laughs> Something about yeah. interviews and storms. Thor's not pleased about not being chosen. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's probably it. Yeah, I would say we have tried to in Totalis Rankium to distinguish these northern barbarians, sort of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's not always... I was going to say, try, try to is a bit of a stretch. Well, I mean, sometimes, to be fair, we we just make a joke about their name and then move on. Um, yeah. But but sometimes we try and dig in a little bit. But it's let's be honest, it's not much. We, we try about as hard as the ancient Roman sources tried. So this is the first time we've come across some northern barbarians where we know some people who know a lot about them. So that's why you're here. Uh, you're here to educate us about the Norsemen or, or the Vikings, which kind of leads us to our first question. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been saying Vikings on the podcast. Should we be saying Vikings? Should we be saying Norsemen, men of the North? What should we be calling these people? Mm. Well, see, that's a, that's a tricky question. Um, I think the first thing to say is that uh, if, you're, if we're talking about the Roman Empire, um, where especially like the classical Roman Empire, though, we're not talking about Vikings at all because they don't exist yet. Um, really, we're going to think about the Viking Age as a period from around 800 to 1050. So those northern barbarians that are causing all kinds of troubles, that, that's still a very much a, a tribal Europe. And very, very little information is known outside of Roman sources about those particular people. Um, but in terms of the, the period and the people that John and I cover, well, the terminology is still tricky there because, you know, today we consider a Norseman to be like someone who comes from Norway, right? But that, that it wasn't always that clear in the Middle Ages what that meant, Norseman or Northman. Um, and this is especially before regional boundaries were like clearly established and centralized governments give rise to this notion of a unified state. And then nationalism comes from, from all of that. That's all a much later kind of thing. Um, in the medieval period, early medieval period, Scandinavians were often lumped together as a single ethnic group. Um, and in many Christian countries, they were simply called pagans or heathens. But they were also called Northmen or Danes or foreigners, uh, depending on where whoever's writing thought they might have come from. Um, So in Ireland, for example, um, they made a distinction between the Norwegians, who they called white foreigners, and the Danes, who they called black foreigners. Um, But regardless of what they were called, they were were always defined by their cultural and religious affinities, uh, what differences they had between uh, the people who were writing about them rather than the specific national identity that they might have had. 
Um, so that's kind of the idea of like when you start thinking about Norsemen, what is a Norseman in this period? Um, it's a little bit messy. The term Viking is even more messy than that, because at this point, the term, you know, at this point in history, modern history, the term Viking with a capital V, that's used as a kind of a broad ethnic term to describe the inhabitants of medieval Scandinavia as a whole. Uh, these are the people of the Viking Age, which is, again, a period between around 800 to 1050, where the Scandinavians really made themselves known throughout Europe by raiding and trading and migrating and settling. Um, so the people of the Viking Age don't really call themselves Vikings. The, that term Viking is actually first used by the English chroniclers in the 9th century to describe those bands of men that are raiding the countryside. Um, in the language of the Scandinavians, though, the word Viking could mean one of two things. It meant a naval warrior or an overseas exp military expedition. Um, so we see people going Viking popping up all over um, the, the sagas, but it's also on runestones, which kind of date to the period. This idea of uh, a per they'll say um, so-and-so, let's say Thorstein, uh, died while he was Viking, which means he died on a military expedition in foreign lands. Um I think one of the things I find most interesting about the term Viking in the saga sources, though, is that um, these sources that are written in the 13th and 14th century is that when they use that term Viking, it usually is a pejorative term. It's it's a negative, indicating that this person is basically like a pirate. He's dangerous. He's a bad guy. So there's a lot there. There's a lot more to say on the subject, but I think <laughs> I think this more or less covers the basics. So the answer is Norseman is more accurate than Viking, but neither one is accurate. Yes, that's that's the that's the upshot. <laughs> yeah, if you want to sum it up like that. Fair enough. Um, obviously, Sag thing covers uh, Iceland mainly um, because you're looking at sagas from Iceland. Uh, how would they refer to themselves? Were they a separate entity to what was going on in Scandinavia, as in Norway? They very much have an identity that is separate from being uh, Scandinavian or Norwegian. Or uh, they're certainly speaking Norse, right? They still speak a common language, uh, but. Uh, as you and I are now speaking from across the ocean, speaking the same language in theory, uh, but having very different entities, uh, they very much thought of themselves as a separate entity. Um, one of the things that you see over and over again in the sagas, Icelanders don't like to disagree with each other in front of Norwegians. Hmm. Uh, they don't, they don't want to give Norwegians any, any sort of angle they can use against an Icelander. And so even Icelanders who have reason to hate each other, even to the point of wanting to kill each other, once a Norwegian happens on the scene, they immediately, or they at least attempt to, quash all unpleasantness between them and present a united front to the Norwegians. Yeah. Oh, that would create some hilarious. Scenes. Oh my gosh! Uh, you find these these men who are in the middle of one one uh, situation where two men are actually traveling from country to country, trying to find a way to f to fight each other and kill each other, but they can't do it in front of Norwegians. Uh, and so they're they're having to, they keep sort of hopscotching one another, trying to find a place where they can both be where it's legal to have a duel and where there are no Norwegians around to see. You son of a... Oh, damn it. Norwegian. Go, oh, you Hi. son of another Icelander. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah. But, you know, and from the from the Norwegian perspective, it, it seems like, at least the way the Icelanders presented, is that the Norwegians see themselves as the betters and the Icelanders are this kind of more rural agrarian culture. They're a little bit backwards. They're far away. They don't have access to the same cultural resources or even uh, physical resources um, that the Norwegians do. And so they're they're just a little bit behind everyone else. I imagine that uh, um, in colonial America, the British thought of the Americans in the same way, very rough. Um, I can argue would... still to this day, to be honest. Yeah. Purely a, <laughs> yes, purely a past <laughs> attitude. <laughs> 
what one of the uh, the most interesting things uh, personally listening to Saga thing, um, mainly because I host a podcast all about Romans, uh, <laughs> is when you mention the Roman Empire. It doesn't happen very often, but every now and again you do. Uh, one of the characters in your sagas just suddenly decides they're off. They're going uh, to the Empire to do mm. something. Obviously, we're, we're talking uh, Byzantine Roman Empire here. We're talking late Roman Empire. It's, it's definitely not what it once was when mm. we're, we're in the uh, time region we're talking about. Uh, so what did your average Norseman on Iceland or in Norway think of? when they thought of the Empire. Was was it a legend? Was it a threat? Was it just a place that they could go and loot, potentially? It's a great question, because it's not an easy one to answer. Right? Uh, first of all, it depends, <laughs> just as you suggest, on what they thought the Roman Empire was. And so we in the West tend to think of the Empire as sort of grinding itself to pieces over the course of the 5th, 6th century AD. And that's obviously going to mean that the Empire was an old story before the Viking Age really gets into gear. That's what Andy was talking about. But they certainly knew that history. Uh, for starters, many of the places that end up with Germanic or Norse rule had been part of the Roman Empire at some point. Uh, so one of the recurring themes of the sagas uh, becomes the story of conversion as being a kind of, uh, as having a connection to a Romanized or continental uh, culture. So uh, in several sagas, conversion then gets followed by pilgrimages to Rome or Jerusalem, kind of drawing that reacclimation back to a European or Roman culture uh, tighter. That's backed up by chronicles. It's backed up by other sources. Right? It's not just the sagas that are saying this. There's definitely traffic to Rome, and certainly the stories of Rome are carried back and forth along those roads. Uh, but in other stories, we're told of Vikings who raid their way through the Mediterranean. Right? They're not doing overland pilgrimages for the purposes of religion. They're on raiding trips, or at least on exploration trips. Uh, we get the story of Bjorn Ironside and his sworn brother, Haston, uh, who are supposedly raiding Rome, but they get bad directions. They end up attacking it, the wrong city, besieging it for a while before learning their mistake, and then sort of go home in disgust. Uh, Bjorn's brothers, the Ragnarsons in Ragnar's saga, they also want to make the trip to Rome, but they give up after learning that it's just way too far to walk, and they content themselves with raiding <laughs> Sweden instead. Uh, and they actually kill a few magical cows while they're there. Uh, so they at least get something out of the trip. But what direction were they going? Uh, well, that's they actually meet a man who claims to be walking from Rome and shows them a pair of metal shoes that he's worn out on the way. Right. And that's the point where they just decide it's just easier to go to Sweden. I see. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because, you know, if you think of like the uh, the British legends of King Arthur, like one of the early legends of King Arthur is that he, he makes his way further and further south until he's ready to attack Rome. Mm -hmm. So the, the Ragnars, Ragnarsons are like a similar kind of model, but then they find out how far away Rome is and they're like, ah, I don't know. It sounds like yeah. a lot of trouble. It's effort. We're going to stay local. Uh, but I mean, without question, these guys, it's it's the, the cultural and religious touchstone that the history of Rome provides is something they're still very much aware of. Right? But mm -hmm. all that is to do with the Western Roman Empire. Mm. Uh, Rob, you were just suggesting the Eastern Roman Empire is a different matter and is much more present uh, in the Viking Age. The, the Norse people had all sorts of interactions with Byzantium, uh, which many medieval people quite correctly thought of as a direct descendant or even continuation of the Roman Empire. So on that side of things, the empire is in direct con connection with the Scandinavian North if we sort of go forward far enough in history. 
If we move into the 9th century, you've got Byzantine emperors, in other words, Eastern Roman emperors, who are making treaties with the Rus Vikings. Uh, in the 10th century, uh, I think it's Basil II formally establishes the Varangian Guard, and that's a, that's a big draw for young Scandinavians looking for a chance at glory. Uh, even when that guard later on becomes mostly Anglo-Saxons and other groups, the idea of service to Constantinople and to the emperors has a lot of weight in the Viking North, uh, among the Rus, but also just among the Scandinavians in general. And people continue to travel there to make their money or to gain fame or to get involved in local politics. Uh, so I, I think the answer is if we think of Rome in its Western form, Vikings knew the stories and thought of Rome more or less as other people did, right? It's kind of the... Uh, the nominal center of, of Christianity, even if it wasn't kind of the spiritual center and didn't have the political authority it once had. If we think of it in the East, though, they had a much more direct and present connection to the Viking world. And that's what shows up most often in the sagas. Yeah, I, you mentioned the Varangian Guard there. I, I was very excited to learn that Roman emperors get to the point where they have a personal bodyguard of Vikings, <laughs> which is a very simplified way of putting it. But if someone yes. had told me that when I was in primary school, I would have been very excited. Uh, yeah. But you Wouldn't you? I don't know why they don't discuss these things. Oh, seriously, it was all about roads. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, we, in, in the English curriculum, we learn about the Vikings, the Saxons, the Normans, and the Romans. Uh, the Normans mm. was a slang word for an idiot at the time. So no one liked them. The Saxons were boring. The Romans were just roads. And the Vikings were the cool ones <laughs> with horns on their helmets. Because, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, that, that was our primary school education. It was great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the Rus, though, uh, because we, mm, we've yeah. started, we've just got to the point where the Rus are a big deal uh, in our podcast. Yeah. Sure. And... I've never really gone into detail in the podcast of who the Rus are, how they're linked to Vikings, why there's some confusion. In my head, it was because I knew that we were going to do this episode one day and it will all be cleared up then. Uh, but partly it's just because it was a... No pressure. It was a bit of a nightmare. Um, so I'm just going to just yeah. hand it over to you guys. Uh, who were the Rus? Why are they linked to the Vikings? Uh, we've been talking about Vikings sailing over the Black Sea to invade. Uh, and the the emperors pushing them back. Uh, is that correct? Uh, certainly, uh, Vikings are traveling all over the Black Sea. Um, and this this idea of the Rus is a really good question. And there's, like the term Viking, it's uh, a lot of, there's a lot of debate around it. Um, I said before that the term Vikings can be used as a broad catch-all for Scandinavian raiders, traders, and migrants of the Viking Age, and I think I think that's true. And you can even include the Rus in there in, a, in the broadest possible sense. But there are definitely some distinctions that I think we sh we should make. Um, we tend to lean really heavy on the term Viking in Western Europe and in English-speaking countries, primarily because I think that's the term that our culture selected over time. That's the term that was kind of given to us in our sources uh, as well. Um, that's not the case for Eastern Europe, where northern warriors and traders who traveled south along uh, the rivers, the Dnieper River in particular, um, they came to be known generally as the, the Rus um, or the, uh, what's it, the, Varang the, the Varangians. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of debate about what that actually means, um, what Rus indicates. So like on the one hand, uh, it's very much like Viking and it's a catch-all term used by the people of Europe to describe these weird, strange people coming down from the north to explore and to travel and to trade and to fight and all that stuff. And these are people coming from the region around Kiev. 
Um, but there are multiple theories about the origins of those those people who have settled around Kiev. And there's like a little triangle of cities um, uh, going out from from Kiev um, that the theory, one of one of the main theories, uh, this is the Normanists who believe that the Rus are a Scandinavian people who migrated south from what is now Sweden. And the anti-Normanists, on the other hand, they believe that the Rus were always Slavs from regions around Kiev. Um, but I think a lot of the sources, Islamic sources included, uh, Islamic sources from the ninth century, for example, seem to indicate that these northern traders who arrived in the Black Sea region to sell furs, they were called Rus, and they were originally part of the Suwayoni tribe, the Swedes, the Swedish tribes. Um, so that's the generally accepted version that they are, the Rus are a Swedish group of people that kind of migrated um, south from Sweden followed the rivers and ended up in that area around Kiev and really had some great successes. successes. Um, but just as, you know, like Vikings who sailed into local cultures uh, in, in the West, so uh, they, they would swiftly integrate into those cultures. Like think about the Northmen who settled in uh, Scandinavia, uh, the Northmen who settled in Normandy in northern France, or the Danes who made lives for themselves in the Dane law of England, um, all those those Vikings who did that kind of very quickly assimilated into the new cultures. And I think that's the same of the Scandinavian Rus who found themselves in a group of Slavic people and quickly integrated into, assimilated into that Slavic culture of Eastern Europe. And so it, it gets very messy in terms of who and what they are exactly. But one of the things that you see and you're, you're seeing in your in your coverage of uh, the Byzantine Empire is that the Rus are getting deeply involved in local and regional politics. And that's that's where you're seeing them kind of pop up, especially with the Varangian Guard, who are in some ways competitors. And that's about as good as I can do with the Rus for you. <laughs> that's a lot more than we had. I mean, I think I'm, I might be speaking for you here, Jamie, but I think... What we want to know is when we're imagining these Viking longboats coming over the Black Sea, <laughs> are we talking full-on dragons on front of longboats and Vikings? Oh, yes. Yeah, that is... <laughs> yeah, how Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it depends on why they're coming. Right? The, um, the idea was that the dragon prow, uh, it has, it, it's got a bit of cultural cachet, right? You're, you're, you're attempting to intimidate. Um, but there is also a kind of superstition attached to it. Um, that it is meant to show that you're on the offense. You would mm. not, uh, you wouldn't keep the dragonhead prow visible uh, if you're sailing into a friendly port, uh, because you wouldn't want to offend the uh, the gods, uh, mm. the the local gods. Uh, so, do they just like cover up the head or something? Uh, they're you actually take it they, off. Yep, they remove them. They're uh, oh. they sort of they sort of slot onto uh, the top. Um, it's like IKEA. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so you can actually... I mean, another thing you can do is disguise your ship by changing your, say, your cap. Could you have different animals yeah. depending on what you wanted to I suppose say. you could. Oh, I mean, there's a lot abuse. of spare room on one of those ships, but I suppose you could carry... You know, Or if you've got somebody who's really quick at whittling, I suppose you could make a few adjustments on the fly. That's um, a heavy whittling problem. Right. Uh, but I mean, you know, anytime we talk about what is superstition and what is religious practice and all these kinds of things, we're... We're operating through the veil of what Christians say about pagan practice. Yeah. So why and wherefore they're removing dragon prows and putting dragon prows on is an open question. But undoubtedly, yes, dragon prows and square sails are always the things yeah. that, that show that there's trouble ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, we once spoke to a woman uh, up in uh, Newfoundland 
whose grandfather owned the property where the, the Lonsa Meadows, the, the Viking settlement in Canada was found. Mm. Uh, and she talked about as a child, because her grandfather would tell her these stories, uh, waiting, going down to the shore every day and watching for square sails. Mm. Because that was always, right, if you see, it, in all the stories, if you see square sails, there's trouble coming. That's, uh, and so you keep an eye out for those very specific kinds of sails, and then you run. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. That's good. That, that, the picture we were giving, uh, I'm glad that it's, it's <laughs> vaguely accurate. It's all any of us strive for, really. Yeah. I was going to say vaguely accurate is about all we can really accomplish, especially when you consider the kind of sources that we're using. Because like the, the Rus and the early Vikings, if we're talking about the real Viking age, whether we're talking about the Vikings of Western Europe or the Rus of, of Eastern Europe, mm. they're not keeping records. Everything we have about them is coming from the plate, the chroniclers and the, the writers of the places mm -hmm. that are being invaded. And it's not until much later that they start writing their own history through the nationalistic lens of later, you know, later inhabitants of their own countries, trying to right. rewrite their own stories. Well, talking of these uh, Christian sources, mm -hmm. slight segue there. Uh, the uh, the Christian, oh yeah, uh, the the Christianization mm -hmm. of uh, Norway and Iceland uh, around the year one thousand. Does that change the Norse view of? Constantinople and Rome. Does do these two cities now take on a different significance? Right. Um, so one of the things that happens uh, with with Christianization is that it's such a piecemeal process across the north. Right? Uh, there isn't the same uh, kinds of conversion going on that go on in the south, where you have martyrs everywhere, kind of a critical mass of martyrs develop, and that's sort of. Eventually, there's sort of an argument in blood that's made for for Christianity. In the north, it's not; it doesn't really work that way. They actually have a dearth of martyrs, uh, and most of the martyrs are created by other northerners. Uh, Olaf Tryggvason of Norway sort of uh, was a big fan of creating martyrs of those who would not convert. So the martyrs tend to be on the other side of the argument; they tend not to be the Christians. Uh, so Christianity has a, a, a kind of diffuse identity. Uh, by the time it gets to the north, right? it's not as closely tied to the southern places as we might expect. Um, but the texts we rely on for information, uh, as I was suggesting a minute ago, all predate or uh, sorry, postdate that Christianization by a couple of centuries at least. And so what we're getting, the chronicles and the sagas, they tend to celebrate things like pilgrimages to Rome or to Constantinople or to Jerusalem. But they're nearly all being written by lifelong Christians. And unsurprisingly, lifelong Christians like the idea of pilgrimage to Rome or to Constantinople. They think that's just dandy. Uh, it's much harder to work out what people in the 11th century thought about all this right around the time of conversion, where there are – it's a lot messier. There's a lot more kind of local politics involved in who's converting and who's not. Um, and so your allegiance to Rome is much less important than – does Christianity, does converting to Christianity open up trading possibilities with Oslo? Uh, does converting allow you to own settlement land in Northumbria? Right? That uh, Those are the things that are really driving conversion. It's not so much about the direct connections to Constantinople or Rome. Uh, so working out what people were actually thinking in the 11th century when they thought about Constantinople, we have to squint a little uh, to try to make sense out of this. We can make a few inferences. Um, one is that Constantinople is connected with a different way of thinking about Christianity than Rome was. Uh, in the sagas, a trip to Rome, at least by the 11th century, going to Rome was an act of piety. Right? It's presented as one, again, by 13th century authors. 
uh, people tended to convert and then go to Rome as a way of affirming their devotion to this new faith. So you get stories of various people deciding to go on pilgrimage as a kind of end to their pagan life, sometimes as an end of life experience altogether. They go to Rome and then die. Uh, so Rome is for the converted, and it's it's often an articulation of women's piety. Uh, Andy and I were just talking about this recently, that most of the figures who travel to Rome in the sagas are either women or in the company of women. Uh, Constantinople, on the other hand, has this association with sort of martial accomplishment. It's where people, it's where young men go to prove themselves or occasionally to be converted. Uh, and again, if we're squinting just right, we can see that Constantinople probably didn't have that meaning in the 11th century, or at least that probably wasn't its primary meaning. Travel was a way of gaining fortune and glory and reputation and all the good stuff that, you know, a young man with something to prove hoped to bring back with them from abroad. Uh, Constantinople is widely seen as a premier destination for all of that stuff. It's also an appealing place to try to rebuild your fortune and reputation if you've run into some trouble back home. So uh, exile, outlawry, right? Depending on your class, outlawry can either be a disaster or it can be a real career opportunity. Uh, so, Rob, if you uh, – what's your patronymic, Rob? What's your dad's name? As in first name? Yep. Robert. So, Rob Robertson. Excellent. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, uh, Rob Robertson, regular farmer guy that you are. Uh, if you get a sentence of minor outlawry, uh, which in Iceland would mean a three-year exile, you're in real trouble. Right? Um, your scanty wealth, forgive me, is all tied to your labor in the land. Right? If you can't work a plot of land, you don't produce anything. Uh, and so you're in trouble. But Jamie Redbeard, who I've just decided is much wealthier than you are, uh, Jamie, yes. you could use your money and your connections to outfit a long ship and spend three years raiding around Europe, possibly robbing poor Rob Robertson when he finds himself a farm in England somewhere. Uh, I, I, can I come on your ship? <laughs> um, I'd need some credentials. That's <laughs> I, I, I once robbed a neighbor but they were asleep at the time. That's <laughs> Sorry. We, Ooh, right. we well, don't know Rob Robertson. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. So you know, Jamie's got that option. You also have the option of going to someplace like Constantinople and making new connections. You can go to Norway and try to develop uh, a trading contract and transport goods back and forth. You can go to the New World, try to bring back supplies of lumber, which are tremendously valuable, especially in places like Greenland or Iceland. So you've got lots of options. Constantinople is kind of one of the more exotic of your options, right? You can go there. You can return with a fancy military title or a highly born wife. Um, we have we had a few stories about that kind of thing mm -hmm. going on. Uh, or you just show up with a set of silk robes and a fancy new ship. Uh, it's it's actually a great opportunity if you can sort of find or buy your way into it. It's a bit like heading to America, isn't it? You, you know, you go there to find your fortune and sort of thing. Like the popular image of that, yeah. Yeah, it's a place of opportunity, right? A place of, of danger, but opportunity. But, I mean, you started by asking mm -hmm. how the conversion changed Scandinavian views of Constantinople. Uh, and I'd say it actually helped to develop them slightly. Uh, Constantinople was a major metropolis, right? Uh, especially compared to the North. Uh, but it's also a powerful symbol in the European High Middle Ages, right? in the 11th, 12th centuries. It's a bulwark of Christianity. It's a launching point for the Crusades. It's a place of great cosmopolitanism, of learning, of, uh, of beauty. Uh, so generally, I would say attitudes toward Byzantium and Constantinople were fairly positive in the North. Uh, so conversion doesn't necessarily change those views so much as reinforce the idea that there was 
sort of fortune and glory and all sorts of good things to be won through a voyage to the southeast. So it's interesting. We've just uh, we've just in our last episode come across the uh, the Great Schism, mm. <laughs> um, which happened in the background of the last episode to such an extent I honestly can't remember if I mentioned it, Jamie. Did I mention the Great Schism? Or did I, in my head, go, we're yeah. going to cover that last yes. next time? Yes, you said the word schism and I giggled slightly. Right, good. So, <laughs> <laughs> we, it's a topic um, I'm waiting for Pontifax to get to, one of our sibling podcasts. Oh, yes. Now, obviously, uh, after the Great Schism, um, just the pebble starts the mm-hmm. avalanche. Uh, and you you see uh, this this huge split in Christianity. So you're talking about the difference between Rome and Constantinople. Is there recognition of of that split in Norse culture? I don't. I as far as what I've read in the sagas and other literature, I don't think that they are really thinking of the schism at all because it's it's such an afterthought. Um, it's it's far enough into the mm. future that they're not really thinking of it. They're, they're looking primarily to Rome as, as the kind of center of their religious yeah. lives. And as John was just indicating, Constantinople is this land of opportunity. It's a romantic mm. kind of place for, for young men to go and make a name for themselves. Uh, obviously, uh, I said earlier, uh, one thing I like listening to Sag thing is when Constantinople comes up. Uh, Which, yeah. Just because, yeah, it's... <laughs> I go, yay, Romans. <laughs> um, so what what's type of stories do we get mm. in the sagas about Constantinople? Um, do you have any particular favorites at all? Oh boy. Um, we do have favorites, uh, but uh, to, to explain that, I'm going to have to go a little bit into the Varangian Guard a bit more. We've, we've, we've been talking around yeah, I them think a that's bit, important. Um, but it's such a rich vein in the sagas. Uh, the the Varangian Guard is established sometime during the reign of Basil II in the late 10th, early 11th century. He has a long reign. Uh, the Varangians were this essentially mercenary group. They're, they're hired warriors made up of people from the north, people from Scandinavia. Uh, but once they're hired, they work exclusively for the emperor. Uh, they're not just a mercenary band. There are several mercenary bands operating in and around Byzantium in this time, and they'll work for whoever pays them. These guys will work only for the emperor as long as the emperor continues to pay their salaries. Uh, for several generations, right? they're exclusively from mostly Sweden, a few other places, they're coming down, they're being hired into this group, this sort of, this corporation that provides a mercenary band for the use of the emperor. Uh, And there are, I would say, a few things that are valuable um, about the Varangians for the emperors. The first is the the showy aspect of it, right? I mean, these are, Varangians tend to be large, pale men from a distant land. Uh, They were an exotic commodity in the Middle East. Uh, so they, you know, they're fun to have around. They look good. Um, they're they're often used for ceremonial purposes, right? They kind of stand bodyguard. Did they keep their big massive beards? Uh, yes, uh, they. Good, uh, good. But so, they, yes. I mean, obviously, you'll make some adjustments to your armor uh, if you don't want to die of heat exhaustion. Uh, but <laughs> um, but no, otherwise they, you know, they they sort of remain that exotic nature sort of marks them out as being of the guard, and that's that's a that's a commodity. Um, another useful thing about them was their loyalty, right? Byzantium had this recurring problem with soldiers and mercenaries who would Hmm. switch sides depending on who was paying them. Uh, and you guys are going to start running into this more and more in the podcast that there's a real problem with the loyalty of the soldiers. I mean, obviously Rome has a longstanding problem with the loyalty of the army, uh, but, uh, that becomes even more difficult when your soldiers are loyal to you only because of coin. 
that uh, sometimes you you got mercenary bands switching sides in mid battle, uh, betraying one <laughs> employer to jump to a rival who offers them more money or a greater share of power, like right there on the spot. Uh, emperors can get into real trouble over this. Right? At the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, which I I I. I don't just happen to have the Battle of Manzikert at my fingertips, by the way. I did a paper on the Battle of Manzikert uh, as an undergrad. Oh, you um, did? Because I, I, I need to did. go into that in our next episode. Uh, so I'll have well, to there you go. We can, we can chat. <laughs> uh, I can see I can find the paper. It's incredibly badly written. Uh, but <laughs> at that battle, you have a combination of disloyal mercenaries and uh, underlings who are engaged in political maneuvering that destroy the battle for the Byzantines, uh, at least to tens of thousands of casualties. And the emperor, uh, Romanus Diogenes, was captured by the Seljuk Turks uh, in, in what ended up being the end of his reign. He, he, while he was gone, he was sort of overthrown in absentia. Uh, so y- you could actually lose your throne over these disloyal mercenaries. The Varangians stay loyal. Once they're bought, they stay bought. Uh, and they don't tend to get bogged down in local power struggles because they're not local. Uh, and part of part of that is because of the emphasis on the oath culture. Yes, um, that Absolutely. is coming from the north, right? Yep. This idea that uh, your honor and your reputation are based on your word and your behavior, your ability to uh, remain loyal and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, um, uh, kill for your lord. Right. And the tricky like thing about that is that like Klingons very much like. <laughs> Uh, the tricky thing about that for them, though, is that that oath, it's a strange sort of oath. It's not an oath to the emperor. It's an oath to the throne of the emperor, to the mm-hmm. office of emperor. Uh, the Varangians have this kind of reputation like the Secret Service in America. right? They they serve whoever is in the chair, not the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get that sort of tested at various points historically. There's one point in the 10th century when an emperor was assassinated the Varangians are alerted to this. They run into the room. They're too late to save the emperor, so they immediately affirm their loyalty to the new emperor, who is literally the guy standing with bloody hands over the body of the guy they came running in to save. Yeah. Oh, no, what happened? Oh. It's, I don't know how this could have been, but their, their loyalty is to whoever is currently the emperor. And so you're now the emperor. If we'd arrived before you killed him, we'd have killed you. But now you're the emperor. Uh, do, do, do you think that caused some awkward conversation? It's like, but he just killed the emperor. Shut up, he is the new emperor. That's, but he just, <laughs> they I, they uh, know how this works. Uh, it, yeah. it, even a century later, uh, Anna Komnena uh, in, in the Alexiad writes about this, this transferable loyalty that when her father became emperor, he was advised not to make a move against the Varangians because as long as you didn't start slaughtering them, they would just serve you as soon as you took the throne. Uh, so it was sort of this, this part of their reputation that their oath was trustworthy and could be trusted by whoever held the throne as long as you were still the one on the throne. So, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic, it's, you know, it's being, I mean, you can tell just from the way I'm telling the story, they're set up to be the stuff of legend, right? They're set up to be the kind of thing that stories would filter back home about. Uh, Yeah. Now, yeah. The question, John, was, do we have good examples? Oh, right. How about, so I can start with one. All right. Um, Do you, do you remember Boli Bolison, John? Oh, Lakstalasal. Boli Bolison, yes. Yes. So we haven't covered this saga yet, but he's a great example. His name's Boli Bolison. Boli, the son of Boli. Uh, so <laughs> Rob Robert, son of Rob. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Same idea. Um, so I, I, what's really interesting about him is he's a very prominent figure in this great saga called Lakstala Saga. And Boli's experience is really representative of a kind of trope that we see in saga literature of a promising young man who's going to make his way in the world and build a reputation for himself by traveling abroad. 
And so like many Icelanders looking to gain some experience and reputation, they always start out by visiting the court of the Norwegian king. And in Boli's case, he visits King Olaf Tryggvason, who's famous for um, kind of reinforcing the conversion of Norway. And so he gains fame there and honor in King Olaf's Norwegian court. And then he decides to test himself further by going into onto the continent of, of Europe. So he travels down to Denmark and stays there. And that's kind of the it's, it's most Icelanders first foray into continental politics and the, the continental world is to go from Norway to Denmark. But from Denmark, they almost always if they're going to keep going, they almost always go directly to Constantinople from Denmark. You don't want you don't want to like really hang around in in Saxony uh, or, or or go to Italy or anything like that. If you want to really make a name for yourself, you go from Denmark to Constantinople, which is exactly what uh, what Boli does. And there he joins the Varangian Guard. And the saga tells us, as it does about most of these characters, that he was always at the forefront of battles, and he proved himself to be a valiant warrior among the Varangians. And Men like this have two paths that they typically go in the in these stories. Either they kind of leave the saga uh, on on the battlefield. Um, they don't don't usually talk about them dying in the Varangian Guard. They just kind of go there and disappear and make a great name for themselves. <laughs> they go and or, live on a farm. <laughs> and, <laughs> eventually, um, or they they come back to Iceland, or they come back to Norway. And when they come back, it's usually a really big deal. They've got a, a big ship, and it's it's stacked with gold. And exotic goods like silk and they're wearing really fine clothes and they're carrying priceless gifts given to them by the Byzantine emperor. And Boli, Boli spends about four to five years with the Varangians before coming home a very wealthy man with all of these gifts. And that experience and the gifts offered by the emperor, that's what establishes men like Boli as paragons of Icelandic masculinity. They are the ideal right. Um and, and that, as John, I think, has been suggesting, is is really the key to these Varangian episodes. Right. I mean, you can look at – I think what you see is that these are uh, stories about men who go there hoping to make a reputation, hoping to become rich. Mm-hmm. Many of the stories in which men don't end up coming back, the assumption there is, well, they never got rich. That they, they found a, a place for themselves. They may find honor in the Varangian guard, but they never do get that ship full of gold that they can bring back home in glory – and so they keep – it's like the gold rush, right? They're sort of still out there looking for that that moment yeah. when they strike it rich. And yeah, if they don't find it, they spend you, the rest of their time. When you found it all. Right, exactly. Hmm. Uh, so in uh, Njal's saga, we get a brief story about a man named Kolskeg, uh, Kolskeg Hamundersen, the brother of Gunnar Hamundersen, the uh, Njal's best friend. Um, Gunnar is sentenced to minor outlawry and is supposed to leave Iceland for three years. And we get this exact thing that we've been talking about. Njal tells him, like, well, go abroad. Go away, earn glory and honor overseas, as I know you will because you're the ubermensch, uh, and return in triumph. Uh, Gunnar ends up refusing to leave Iceland and he gets killed by his enemies for being an outlaw. But his brother, Kolskeg, takes the ship and goes. Uh, and he spends some time in Denmark, right? Andy was just saying that's always where you go. He's, he serves Sven Forkbeard for a year, uh, has a dream in which uh, a shining man, presumably Christ, uh, tells him, I will make you a knight of God. And, his, and he realizes the only way to do that is to then go to Constantinople, join the Varangian Guard, uh, and sort of spend his time in this this bastion of Christianity. Uh, he makes he makes himself a family there. He he marries down there. He becomes a commander in the guard, but he never does return home. Right? He never strikes it rich enough to return in glory, and so he he just makes his life there. 
Uh, one of my favorite examples is from Greta's Saga. Um, oh, good. I was going to do that if you didn't. <laughs> yeah. At the end of Greta's Saga, or near the end of Greta's Saga, um, Greta, the, the outlaw, is is overcome by his enemies in a rather treacherous way. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> um, but his brother, Thorstein Drummond, who earlier in the saga was made fun of for his, his noodly arms. He's, he's just not strong. <laughs> Um, he hears about his brother's death in he's in Norway and he decides to follow uh, Gretzer's killer all the way down to Constantinople. And both he and the killer uh, join the Varangian Guard. And along the way, uh, th- this guy's name is Thorstein Drummond. Uh, Thorstein avenges Gretzer. He meets the great Harold Sigurdsson. He falls in love with a noblewoman from Constantinople. And he even converts to Christianity. And so there, again, you have this idea of of uh, these men going down to Constantinople with uh, with very masculine goals, uh, but one of the things they find often is a woman. Uh, they find wealth, they find reputation, and they often find Christianity. And so Constantinople is a place that that seems to be uh, where where young Viking men can go to shape themselves. And as far as the 13th and 14th century authors are concerned, Constantinople is a useful place for men to shape themselves not only into warriors but into good Christians. It's the first step that they must take. Um, in that transitional period from being a quote-unquote Viking to a, a Christian. Yes, John, I you, see. You say that, but yeah. I'm going to now bring up Harold Hardrada. <laughs> okay. Uh, Harold Hardrada, I think we could probably wrap up the Varangian Guard by talking about his career. Um, so not everybody goes down there to become a good and noble Christian. Uh, That's true. Harold uh, eventually became a king of Norway, which so we have a saga about him included in the cycle of sagas of the Norse kings. It's called the Heimskringla. It's written by the infamous Snorri Sturluson. <laughs> uh, Harold's saga is based on an historical reign, right? So we can sort of mine his saga for stories that are at least partly historical. There's some kind of a nugget in there. Uh, before he became king, Harold spent years in the Varangian Guard. Uh, and right from the beginning, he's a bit of a schemer. Uh, he cheats at drawing lots to decide who's going to lead his company uh, by destroying the the, uh, the chosen lot before anybody can see whose it was and then claiming it was his. Uh, he generally is good at outplotting people. His, his military career is quite a success because of it. He, he fights for the guard in Anatolia, in Italy, in Asia Minor. He's sort of all over the place. Uh, at one point, Harold and his men are, be- are besieging a walled town in Sicily. And the town is well supplied and prepared to wait out a siege. So Harold comes up with a plan. And I actually, I have the saga right here. So I'm going to just let <laughs> Snorri tell us what happened next. Now Harold thought up a scheme. He told his bird catchers, of course he's got bird catchers, to catch the small birds that nestled within the town and flew out to the woods each day in search of food. Harold had small shavings of fur tied to the backs of the birds. And then he smeared the shavings with wax and sulfur and set fire to them. As soon as the birds were released, they all flew straight home to their young in their nests in the town. Those nests were under the eaves of the roofs, which were thatched with reeds and straw. The thatched roofs caught fire from the birds, and although each bird could carry only a tiny flame, it quickly became a great fire. A host of birds set roofs alight all over the town, one house after another ablaze. Soon the whole town was afire. At that, the people came out of the town begging for mercy. Harold spared the lives of those who begged for quarter and took control of the town. That, that <laughs> I love accurate history. That is amazing. I, mean, I w- really want to see an accurate version of an attempt of that. <laughs> yeah. that would, yeah, <laughs> Do yeah, you? Yeah, I feel yeah, like that's a little bit cruel. 
<laughs> Jeff, grab the blowtorch. <laughs> Maybe a reenactment of an accurate version. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those moments when I, I read that saga in uh, in grad school, early in mm-hmm. grad school, and I thought to myself, "Why am I studying the Anglo-Saxons? These, these. This is where the Vikings action is. Are so much cooler. There's so much more going on. And we should say that Harold ends his career among the Varangians somewhat ignominiously. Uh, he gets accused of embezzlement. Um, and has to break out of prison and escape from Byzantium. Uh, but it doesn't matter, right? Back home, his reputation is as a, a successful military man in the guard, and that helps his later rise to the throne. Uh, so, yeah, people can go into the guard for all kinds of reasons. And if you're interested in reading about the Varangian guard in action, well, I mean, Harold Saga, uh, the saga of Harold Hardrada, that's that's one of the best. Because yeah. there's a, an extensive, uh, there's something like uh, 10 chapters spent yeah. with the Varangian yeah, guard. Yeah, that's only one chapter. Harold Hardrada is... An amazing figure in history. He's one of those um, people who I don't understand that I knew his name for so long without right. knowing much about him. Because from an English perspective, all we're taught about him in school is he's the loser at Stanford. Before, yes, before the real battle took place, <laughs> right. and it's just like yeah. oh, so, so, and there was another Harold, and that's all right. he ever. Yeah, there's the other Harold. So, he was by far the most interesting. And yeah, not, of those Harolds, he's he's pretty pretty yeah. fascinating. If we ever yeah. want to do a three-part podcast between uh, you guys, us, and the Rex Factor guys, Harold Hardrada is probably the only figure who is equally valid as a subject for all three podcasts. Yeah, he is a, yeah, a perfect right. crossover figure, isn't he? Right. Well, thank you very much for <laughs> no just telling us a bit about the the Norse perspective, uh, how they might have viewed the Byzantines, the Romans. Uh, so to sum up, they were hairy. They had cool boats. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, Rome was uh, more religious and Constantinople was more manly. Yeah. But a manly religious. <laughs> yeah, and still religious. Yeah, manly religious. <laughs> manly in the right way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jamie, do you have any questions? Um, Putting you on the spot because I didn't ask you to prepare any. <laughs> yeah, I, it's a question I think I, I, it's a question I think I know the answer to anyway. But um, there, there's the you know, as as a child, you're always shown when you're shown a picture of a Viking in a book. Mm. It's a Viking with pointy horns on his hat. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> Obviously, we know that's possibly not true. Right. I, I bet you're going to throw a curveball at me now, but no, no. I'm assuming it's not. It's not true. It's not uh, true. It, it so, comes from. Um, sorry. Vi- Victoria was it? Yeah. Where did that come from? Um, <laughs> One question. It, I mean, it's a uh, there's a long and complicated history there, but the the upshot is yeah, it comes from 19th century art. Um, it's it's to do with a sort of series of mistranslations, uh, one of which is why we also get the idea that Vikings drank out of the skulls of their enemies, which I don't know if you ever tried it, but there's a lot of holes in a skull. Uh, it's not a... You're, yeah, you're holding it, it upside down, John. you got to hold it there. I, <laughs> there's still holes. <laughs> um, but it's a, yeah, it's a series of mistranslations that have to do with drinking from horns. Okay. Uh, but you end up with this association of horns and skulls and helmets and eventually artists who decide, well, if they drank out of horns, uh, then I can put them on the helmets as well, which also gives you this association of the Vikings with demons, devils, right? yeah. which, of course, is also something that is a kind of English attitude toward the Vikings at various points in history. Yeah. Uh, but but John, I was always under the impression that the horns uh, really come from uh, staging of the Wagner operas. And that this was staged, it was a staged decision right, no, to it's, make the, it's, the Vikings really pop. 
little right. bit. Right. The, the art first, though. Uh, that it's uh, they. It's. I mean, it's all coming at the same time, isn't it? Uh, yeah. That you've got. So we just blame the Victorians, basically. Yes, I think that's fair. It's always a, a default position for almost anything. Isn't yeah, it? I um, think blame the Victorians is always Queen Victoria's right. fault. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what we should do. Great. Okay. <laughs> if you think about you logically, there's you know, if you're wearing a horned helmet, right? There's all kinds of good reasons why you would never ever do that, right? The you're just you're walking into battle with handles on your head. Uh, yeah. Which is yeah. just well, not to mention they they fight in a shield wall, and if you're next to a person and you've got horns on your head, where's that horn? The tip of that horn going? Right, especially oh. if they turn suddenly. What? <laughs> but yeah. if you've pre-filled it with ale, you could snap it right. off and have a mid-battle <laughs> drink. So. Well, you put the, you put those straws that come down for it's like the, the double. <laughs> yeah. you know, oh no, that's you have the beer. That's the million-dollar idea, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The horned Viking helmet that you can drink out of. Yeah, could have revolutionized history here. <laughs> Quick, somebody copyright that before this episode goes up. Right, right. Well, um, I think we're we're going to go into the second part of this episode, if that's okay. all right. There's a second um, part. Oh, there's a second part because uh, we, we've done the history. Uh, let, let's have a bit of fun. Um, all right. If, if you're listening and you've not listened to Saga Thing, you might get slightly lost here. Uh, but if you've listened to Saga Thing, this will be great. Um, and it's my podcast, and I listen to Saga Thing, so... <laughs> you get to do what you want. Exactly. Uh, what we're going to do, we're going to play How Well Do You Know Your Co-Host? Oh. <laughs> Which doesn't have a jingle at the moment, but it could do. I think it better have a jingle. Jamie. <laughs> How well do you know your co-host? I'll turn that into a jingle. <laughs> Cheers. Right. <laughs> Okay, so what, what I did is uh, I sent some questions to John and Andy beforehand, uh, and they've answered them. Uh, but mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask them again, because that would be weird and pointless. Uh, <laughs> I'm now going to ask their co-host what they think the oh, other person boy. answered. Mm -hmm. And we're so going like to a, uh, we're gonna get a winner. A newlywed game. Uh, yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> are, we, are we competing against one another or as a team? You're very much competing against one another wonderful that's how we prefer it let's start um john yes i asked andy you can choose one pet from a saga what do you choose Ooh. Uh, okay this is a hard one to a start pet. with um it has to be from a saga it has to be from, from a saga oh, oh okay fine from from one of them that you've covered right andy it's not from a thowder correct uh, well, I mean, I don't know that I'm allowed to really help you, especially if I'm competing with you. Uh, then I'm going to say <laughs> you want I know I know you're a, a proud dog owner. I'm going to say you want a loyal companion and a guardian for your household. I'm going to say uh, Siam the dog, uh, Gunnar's dog in Yal Saga. Mm. Very interesting. Andy, do you want to uh, reveal what you said? If you chose if well, you chose the polar bear from Alvin, I'm going to call foul. <laughs> I did not. I did not choose the polar bear from Alvin. Um, I, here's what I what I said. If I was limited to a standard domestic pet, mm -hmm. then you're right. It would be Salmer the dog. Of from course it would. Yal Saga. But John, I have exotic tastes. <laughs> a simple dog is not enough for me. Oh boy. I, I'm going with Jarl Haukens. You, you going to follow me here? Do you remember this from Finnboga Saga? <laughs> The talking bear. Or yeah, the bear who I know what you're speech. Yeah, talking. That's a great pet. A <laughs> polar a bear. Pet. A polar bear who I can have conversations with. How is that terrible? 
It's argumentative. Cool. If the polar bear can talk, will <laughs> will it take offence to being called a pet? Oh, that's a good point. Ooh. I would I would think of him more as a companion. Bit off more than you. Well, that's a debate you can have with your bear. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, uh, I don't know. I'm tempted to give half a point there. Um, for I think half the a dog. point is fair on that one. Yeah. All right. so, okay, John, you got half a point. Uh, Jamie, Woo-hoo. do you want to make a note of points here? Uh, because <laughs> I, I'm not. <laughs> Jamie's usually in charge of making notes of scores. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Usually? Yeah, he's, he's got a notepad and everything. Jamie actually writes handwritten notes to every single episode we record. I Good find job. it very weird. Well but Jamie finds it... Helps oh. me remember. Well, that that I was going to say, there were many <laughs> listeners who would debate that, Jamie. <laughs> it definitely... Well, it'd be even worse if I didn't. Let's put it that way. Fair. So Fair. We're, saying, we're saying John gets one point. Right? Half point. Half a point. John, oh, how do you do that in a tally? Uh, just a really short line. Okay. <laughs> yeah, done. Uh, well, why? Why is the dog so nice from Now Saga? Oh, he's just oh, he's a, a very strong guardian dog, uh, mm-hmm. and he is he sacrifices himself, but makes a sort of yelping noise as he dies to warn his master of trouble. Wasn't he just in pain? Tragic figure. He's a tragic figure. Now Saga was a long time ago. I can't remember. <laughs> he didn't die in the house burning, did he? No, no, he actually dies when Gunnar is attacked by 30 of his enemies and is uh, eventually killed in his home. But okay. uh, he's not caught unaware because his dog warns him. Fair enough. Okay, Andy, your question. Okay. I asked John a weirdly phrased question because I <laughs> I mistyped. Um, so okay. I, I'm, I'm going to go for what he's answered. Uh, I asked John what his third favourite of your thing men is third fa- a third favorite is an odd <laughs> an odd number to choose it is andy i did right. give them my top easy. three so you might be you able know, to score I, half a point okay okay let's see if i can i can guess your top three all right so i'm trying to go in reverse order so i'm trying to get to get to number three okay. so, so i'm gonna say your john's favorite thing men of mine is and i think i got this right onan's tree foot from Gretsch's Saga. Is that accurate, John? Stop fishing. Give all three answers. <laughs> okay. Um, now, from there, I have to guess a little bit. I'm going to say... Um, I'm going to say Gisli Sursen is number two. And then your third one is going to have to be someone who is uh, really remarkable, maybe dashing, uh, very useful. It's going to be either Arin Bjorn from Ale Saga or Kauri Salmundersen from Njal Saga. And if I have to choose those two... I'm going Kari Salmundersen as number three. How'd I do? <laughs> That's very hard. That is a that, was, that is a damn good job. I, I'm very impressed. Uh, Wait, what? Are, so how did go it go? On, John, do you want to reveal it? Uh, I own in this first, of course. Uh, he still no haunts me. He still haunts me. Um, uh, <laughs> I had Kari second and okay. Gisley third. Oh. Well, I didn't get it exactly right. No, another half point, though, I think. Half point? Yeah, yeah I think definitely half I think I get there. three quarters of a point, though. I had a little <laughs> bit more to, to do there. <laughs> I, I must say, um, I am always, I'm not sure what the word is, uh, slightly uh, horrified and awed of how, <laughs> how vicious you two are when it comes to this thing, man. There's, there's always parts of me who thinks, they'd, they'd just be kind here. 
they're, they're say it's fine. You you have this person because I had, but no, you you, right. you go for the throat each well, time. I mean, Rob, what we are setting up here by the end of when once we've gone through all forty is our our two Thingman groups are going to have to fight each other, right. and <laughs> we don't want them, them getting too chummy. No, that's, no, that's no definitely not. I I expect to see John's body or his head uh, on my table at the end of Saga thing. I have no use for your head once it's off the body, Andy. <laughs> Okay, John's question. I asked Andy, if you could steal any one thing, man, from John's hall, who would it be? Oof. Uh, I I mean, I hesitate to go for the obvious here, but um, Snorri Gothi. It's got to be Snorri Gothi from Everja Saga. I mean, that's the greatest betrayal in Saga thing history right there. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, when we did that saga originally, it didn't occur to Andy that if he went first in the first saga, that I would get to go first in the following saga. (laughs) (laughs) Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that is correct. It is Snorri Gothi. Um, (laughs) And for those of you who haven't listened to the podcast, it's in our second uh, saga that we, we covered. And John spends the whole saga crapping all over Snorri like he's a terrible person. He Only is a terrible person. He's just a great thing, man. <laughs> I stand I by everything I said that. about him. Okay, that is that's a whole point. That is there you go. John's. Mm-hmm. That's that's a point and a half. Okay, that was too easy though. I don't think that was a fair question. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, there, there's a couple of easy ones in each. Don't worry. Don't worry. Okay. Okay. Uh, I asked John, "What is your second least favorite saga?" See. <laughs> okay, so I have to guess his his third favorite thingman and his second. Who's writing these questions, Rob? Uh, yes, yes, I am. Uh, I mean, come on, the least would have been too easy. You'd have yes, got least. Yeah. Now, Rob, you're starting to see which one of us is the one to start complaining when these games are happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, your second question was a softball, John. This is not uh, okay. So what I have to do is I have to remember sagas that John wasn't particularly a fan of. Um, and he can be really harsh on sagas that don't fit his little predefined uh, idea of what a saga <laughs> is. So I think it could you know, easily... I'm a, I'm a bit concerned here that we're going to break up saga thing if we continue these questions. <laughs> oh, no, this is uh, At least we know who the winner is. There, and that's what's that's important. True. Yeah. It's the true. two things that keep us going. We've known each other for 20 years. And also, uh, both of our wives tend to agree with the other one. Yeah, it's really weird. Uh, so we've also we get rein, the other person gets reinforced in the arguments once we leave our conversations with each other. Yeah, it's weird, my, my wife prefers Rob as well. So. Yeah. It's really interesting. <laughs> I guess they've all had enough of us. Is, is that really could very well be what it comes down to? All right, so yeah, I got to think about things he he dislikes. I don't think he liked Floamana Saga. I know he doesn't like Horth Saga very much. Um, and then there's uh, the saga of. Uh, what was it? Rakedal and Killer Scooter. You didn't like that one either. <laughs> I have a feeling you, this is all going to change, though, after our next uh, saga, because I think uh, Barther Saga might end up being uh, <laughs> the lowest, but I don't think we can count that. So, okay, if I have to choose, um, I think your least favorite is going to be Floamana Saga. So I'm going to go with Rakedal and Killer Scooter as your second least favorite. Do you want to tell him, Rob, or should I? The silence is not good. I, that wasn't the worst answer in the world. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you could have said something that wasn't a saga. Um, that that's not very encouraging, Rob. That's a teacher, I can tell you. Uh, John, John, go on. Uh, you were correct that Floamana is my least favorite. Okay. Uh, it's got so a good name, I think you could probably earn a half point again. 
but uh, Vapnifjord Saga. Oh, uh, the one with the one where the entire saga builds up to a final battle, which is missing from the manuscript. Yes. <laughs> Infuriating. Yes. But then you get to make up your own bits. Oh, God. It's like choose your own adventure. Right. No, it's like reading a bad mystery novel and then finding out that somebody's torn out the chapter where you find out who done it. That's hilarious. I completely forgot that we'd even, we'd even done that one. <laughs> uh, okay, so it's how high it ranks. I'll give you half a point because you said Flow half Mana Saga. Yeah, I Flo, said Flow Mana point. would be worse. So yeah, yeah, he did get Flow Mana. That's like saying, what color is this car? And him answering, oh, it's not green. <laughs> <laughs> I like the I way know. Jamie thinks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no, I think half, uh, he, half a point. Half a point. Half a point. I'm being asked to get find the middle of his rankings. That's <laughs> significantly more difficult Here he than... Is again. <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll let the listeners judge. John. John, I yep. asked Andy. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, he's got a box of matches, or maybe one of those little matchbooks. And he's got mm-hmm. a, a strange room, which uh, happens to have all the surviving traces of uh, Nal Saga and El Saga in. <laughs> which does he burn? I don't like burn? the way this is going. <laughs> he must which, burn. Which does he one. burn? Yeah, he must burn all traces of one of those two sagas. Which one is he burning? Now this is uh, this is this is hard because. I know that we finished Ale very recently, and we were both heartily sick of him by the time we were done. <laughs> and that might prejudice his thinking. But on the other hand, Nyal Saga is called the Saga of Burnt Nyal. <laughs> That's true. I don't know if, if I can if I can resist that. I think I think though Andy would be heartily sick of Ale Saga, would he want to burn Burnt Nyal? I think he would decide that Nyal's already suffered enough from fire and he would burn Ale Saga. I decided to burn Ale Saga, but not for the reasons. I, your, your reasons are very flimsy. My reasons are irrelevant, Andy. The answer matters. I was not told to show my work. <laughs> That's true. It's not a proof. So you're, you're good to go. No. Nyal Saga, I mean, Ale Saga is really like an action movie. It's, it's fantastic mm-hmm. and fun, but uh, Nyal Saga is, it's both entertaining and fun, but it's also, it's a deep, text it's got a lot yep. of wisdom to offer so i can't erase that from the world mm-hmm. i mean that's one of the i think we concluded at the end of our episode this is one of the greatest works of european literature or medieval yep. european literature it's it's too good no it's got to stay i i applaud your decision i'm also going to have you arrested for what you did to ale saga <laughs> no one knows about it what's ale saga <laughs> it's a good point okay what what's score so far jamie oh uh john's got two and a half Andrew's got one. Ooh. Two half Ooh. points. That's mm. all right. <laughs> okay. We prepare yourselves. We go on to the third round. Oh, no. We're st- <clears throat> this is the third round. We're in the middle of the third round. Yeah. Okay. I asked John, you get to pick a nickname for yourself that everyone has to call you. Mm. What do you is choose? A, but it must be a nickname a, that you've covered so far. That's what I was going to ask. So, okay. Yeah. I think the first thing to, to note here, Rob, is... Uh, I usually take a nap during the nickname <laughs> section of judgment. So how? It's that's another really hard question you're asking here. Yeah, I, mu- I must admit. Now I'm reading these side to side. These definitely seem slightly harder for one. Well, or the there other. you go. Uh, but all right. right. <laughs> maybe so I'm going to slightly better at answering them, Andy. Oh, maybe, maybe. maybe. Um, so yeah, I, I would say first that John's nickname is well established from grad school days as John Forkbeard. Um, so that that's the nickname he has, and that's the one that's going to stick. But. <laughs> If I have to pick a nickname that we have covered, um, 
It's not John the Old. It's not Johnny Butterbring. Well, I think that's <laughs> a good one. Thank you very much. I know he's not stingy with meat, so it's not John the open-handed but stingy with meat. I eat well when I visit his place. Um, John, I am quite partial to John the Beshitten. How do you how do you feel about that one? Uh, not fantastic, but it's not really up to me, is it? No, uh, but I know that John's a big fan of uh, beard nicknames. So, um, and I expect here full credit. For whatever beard nickname he has chosen, because it's not fair to say what beard nickname did he choose. But our most recent one was Belt Beard. And I think that John wishes that he had a beard so luxurious as to be tucked neatly in his belt. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to go with. Gandalf style. Uh, Andy, you know I'm John Forkbeard. I've always been John Forkbeard. Uh, I even made a point of name dropping Sven Forkbeard earlier when we were having our conversation just to give you a leg up on this one. <laughs> So I did you say Forkbeard. You did say Forkbeard. Uh, yeah, and then you, you sort of swerved away from that mm-hmm. answer. You know what? I did. I swerved away because I don't remember covering someone named Forkbeard. But obviously Sven Forkbeard, Sven Forkbeard is like the most famous <laughs> guy. Father of Knut. Uh, yeah, he's he's shown up once or twice. Probably should nap less during the nickname section. <laughs> Still, that's, that's a good half point again. These half points, yeah, they're actually they're 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 I'm, I'm a bit more impressed. I'm a bit more impressed. He went down the beard route. Yeah. And he did actually say it. Mm-hmm. About two thirds of a point. Fair. I'll take it. Two thirds. Two thirds. Thank yeah. you, Jamie. Okay. That's two, two that's thirds. Fair. Although, Jamie, I, mean, I want you to hold it up and show us how you sh- did two thirds of the hash mark. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I, I've given up with that. I'm just writing the, <laughs> oh, writing the numbers. Fair given up on time. Yeah. Although you are now going to have to add fractions. Yes. Which, uh, <laughs> I've I've taught you five. I can do that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All good. Right. Okay. Find the common denominator. I'm I'm good. <laughs> Let's Round. make Andy add fractions. That'll be fun. <laughs> Well, right now I have uh, I have one and two thirds points. How about that? Good job, thank yeah. you. Uh, okay. Um, oh, I've lost who who I was on. Who do I need to ask? I need oh, to ask John, John, don't I? Yeah. It's, okay. It's, round four. Uh, I asked Andy, you have to live with a saga character for six months in a log cabin. <laughs> in, a, in a what? In a log cabin. In a log cabin. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how relevant it being made of logs will will be, uh, but who knows? Uh, who do you choose? Oh boy, you're right, Eddie. Some of these questions are hard. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I suppose the the obvious answer is Thorbjorg Shipbreast, but that's probably not. Um, that's not <laughs> that going to be, be the choice. answer, um, since uh, your wife listens to this. Oh um, uh, boy, I mean, the, six months. Are they just, it's just the two of them on their own, is it? Six months, uh, a lot of uh, jerky, a talking polar bear, and uh-huh. uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, no, if they have food, rainwater. Right, if they have can, can food, they that changes cabins? my answer. They, yeah, they have food. Hunting? Uh, okay. No, it, they, they're delivered food for a hatch. Right. None no, of this was given to Andy, by the way, so feel free to right. contradict me, but in my head. Uh, <laughs> because my if, if there were no food, then I would say he'd probably want Thorgil's Scarleg steps in. Uh, a, <clears throat> a man who, according to the saga, can cause his breast to flow with milk by cutting himself with a knife. Uh, which oh, would be I tremendously that. handy. That, that was uh, grim. I mean, that, that party <laughs> trick would... That, that's a cool party <laughs> trick, but it would get it would old after a while. It would pass the evenings, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I think... Um, what, I, what I know is that Andy needs... Uh, having met his wife, uh, Andy needs a woman who is smart and fearless and competent at running things despite her partner being Andy. Uh, and so I'm going to say 
uh, Alv Veston's daughter uh, because she manages to keep her farm running for years despite her husband Gisley hiding in the shed. So she'd, she'd probably be able to keep Andy alive for six months. That's that's very funny, John. I did think long and hard about a, a female uh, character that I would choose, but ultimately went another direction mm-hmm. because I'm not a pervert. It was... I'm talking about all right. You, you said Thorbjorg shipbreast, so what I did, am I supposed I to? I didn't assume? answer Thorbjorg shipbreast. <laughs> no, I uh, I chose Kauri Salmunderson because he is a he's a good time debonair swashbuckling fellow with lots of good stories. And sure. plus, I know he could protect me if a a big bear should show up. <laughs> There's a bear in there with you. So. <laughs> oh dear. All right. Okay. Is your opportunity to jump ahead, Andy? Okay. The year is. Approximately 1,000. What is your job, slash, where do you live, slash, what are you up to? It's a fairly open question, this, so we'll just judge on roughly how close you get. <laughs> gotcha, okay. So, um, I think, so the, the question is, the year is 1,000. I'm assuming John's living in Iceland, because that's what we do Yeah, yeah. on our podcast. And the, the real question is, what is he doing for a living? What does he do, right? Yeah. And... I mean, if it's the year 1000 and we're living in Iceland, then there's, I think, two options. John's going to probably say that he's the law speaker, uh, which is a very prestigious uh, role in Iceland for a very wise and intelligent person. But come on. Really, John? No. John, you're a farmer like everybody else. And it, and if, if not that, then you're a farmer's slave. And you're going to count yourself lucky to be that high on the social ladder. But oh, thank I'm you. Gonna say, I'm going to say very... Very likely John's a farmer because that's what you do. I want to be clear that uh, it, I did not realize I was supposed to be in Iceland, uh, which colors my <laughs> oh, answer slightly. Um, Are you in South I, America? <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I said I would either be a not very successful farmer or a not very celibate monk. Uh, <laughs> and, that, uh, and that I would probably opt for monk because I like spending my time studying thousand year old texts. And in 1000 AD, that's a boom industry for monks because 1000 year old text puts you <laughs> in a good spot. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I, I think I would be a uh, a not very good at a following rules monk. All right. W- were the monks at, were the monks at this time brewing their own beer? Because I know you got the Belgian Oh, yes. Oh, gosh, monks. yes. Yeah. Oh, good choice. Mm-hmm. Good choice. Although I mean, if you're studying a thousand year old text, then that would be from year zero. Yes. So, where, where are you going to get those from? People are like, what could possibly be happening around the year zero that might be of interest to a monk? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but I think I did I did list farmer as the other option, so I think another half point there. Yeah, I, I, you're doing well with your half points. Must be I, I, I mean, this is part of why, you know, like when it comes to like standardized testing, I don't do great, but I do all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'm also going to add that John said that he'd love to claim that he was raiding the English countryside. Uh, yeah but uh, it's just not my it's not me (laughs) no (laughs) i'm a homebody okay that leads us to the final round then uh john i asked andy you're living in iceland see i was more precise with this question uh (laughs) in the year 1000 roughly and oh dear you've accidentally killed a neighbor with a large stick what happens (laughs) um sorry about that yeah (laughs) i mean no one's seen uh, mm-hmm. So what do you do? Um, the question here is whether uh, I'm going to assume that Andy will follow the law or not, um, <laughs> because he has the option of 
uh, just covering the corpse with some leaves and, and you know, pretending it didn't happen. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm going to assume that Andy is a law-abiding citizen. So, Andy, you, uh, after killing this person for no reason whatsoever, um, you would... It was an accident. Right. Uh, yeah. Cover the body uh, to ensure that it is not uh, attacked by animals. You would go to the nearest farmhouse where you do not believe yourself to be in danger and announce the killing. Um, and then you would return home after making provision for the body to either be recovered or buried for safekeeping. Hmm. This is really close. This is very, very close. <laughs> Almost word for word. <laughs> well, we know our law codes, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm i a law-abiding citizen, John. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm going to cover the body with rocks and I'm going to announce it like like you said. But uh, I'm not going to go home after. Oh, no, I, I know I know what happens in these stories. <laughs> so I am going to casually explain at the nearest farmhouse mm-hmm. that the man attacked me and that I was left with no recourse but to kill him in self-defense. Then Wait, is that that's not true. No one saw. <laughs> <laughs> what is you truth? know, they will examine the body for defensive for defensive and offensive wounds. Whatever. I'm then going to mm. ride to Snorri Gothi's house and I'm going to ask for help. <laughs> and everything should work out fine. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, what, two-thirds for that answer? I, I, I think two-thirds is... is, is that was mostly correct. <laughs> it's mostly correct. The first yeah, part's the absolutely correct. Yeah. Okay, final question then. Uh, I asked uh, John, what is the scariest thing that you've covered in a saga that you think you could defeat slash overcome? <laughs> the scariest... <laughs> Um, I mean, the first thing that I think about would be that John would get killed fighting almost anything that we've encountered in the saga. Oh, because thank you very much. <laughs> he lacks the physical fortitude and lung capacity, to be honest. <laughs> so, you know, an undead creature like Glaumer or any any undead monster that we've encountered is right out. Um, so if I'm being honest, I think the uh, the scariest creatures that we have encountered in the sagas might actually be some of the women, like Holgarth Longlegs uh, in Njal Saga or Gunild, Mother of Kings. Both are really, really awful, uh, formidable opponents. But I don't think John went in that direction. I don't think that's the, the angle. Of course not. Taken. I would not call women things, Andrew. <laughs> I think the saga treats them as scary monsters, so I think it's mm-hmm. fair to bring them up as, as this. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think you went that way. I think um, if we. I think you'll be getting correct, emails about this one. <laughs> yeah, you might. <laughs> uh, we, we had a conversation way back. Um, I don't remember which saga it was, but um, about cats. About a guy named Thorolf Sledgehammer who has 20 monstrous black cats guarding his property. And we debated at the time how many cats we could each beat in a fight. And so I think, I think that's the direction you went. I think John is going to try his hand at Thorolf Sledgehammer's big black cats. And I think he's going to fail after about seven or eight. <laughs> are these like house cats or like that's not very clear yeah, it's not, it says they are monstrous and large um, right but what is a they're supposed it's to be a like a witch's a, a witch's big black right. cat. large as in as big as two mice kind of large right. <laughs> i think as big as a norwegian house cat they're they're fairly right. large but right. not like uh you Good know size not bobcat and fluffy. size yeah. go on and jump andy you got the dead right uh, although yes. I did say that I was pretty sure I could take all 20 of them. They are just cats, after all. No, uh, I don't think so. And I, I would probably enlist the help of uh, Siamr, their dog. <laughs> uh, he's, he's, he's partially my pet, so no, he's not going with you. <laughs> oh, thanks. 
<laughs> I, I'm I'm very impressed with that. That was a very hard question, and you that's, got it. That's a good point. I'm tempted to award a bonus point five. Oh, now come yeah. on, because that that was impressive. So Lovely. what are you saying? I'm going to say one point five for that. <gasps> hey! Oh, this is fraudulent. I like Rob more and more. I, I've never been yeah. given the opportunity of a bonus half. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you just gave him the win. Oh, if I've given him a win, I take it back. It's it's mainly pity. <laughs> oh, uh, I, I think it's it's mainly guilt, not well, pity. I, I have. I have the total scores here, so excellent, Rob. What what are you doing? I don't need I don't need charity. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, okay. There we go then. Just the one. Just, Just the one. one. Okay. Yeah. Right. Final scores. How do we do? John, you yeah. scored three and one sixth. Excellent. Andrew, you scored three and one sixth. Oh come on! <laughs> oh. Come on now. Oof. I Does that uh, mean we get to go on a date? <laughs> that, it's, a, it's a match yay yeah it's Co- perfect Cosmo gives us a blessing <laughs> I, I'm slightly saddened that there's no winner but I, I didn't think to do a tiebreaker question so oh, yeah. uh, we'll just arm wrestle next time we see each other that's right yeah that, that would do um, how many words are there in your translation of Rothengale saga that's not fair which one Rothengale that's yeah. not a fair uh, question okay uh, do I answer or does he answer <laughs> but no, John's in charge of the Robin kills, so I don't think uh, that's a fair question. All right. at all. <laughs> so it, are we writing our are we writing our answers down and holding them up? Is that how this works? Yeah. Let yeah, me yeah. check okay. my emails and texts. I'm sure I can. Andy, no cheating. <laughs> the, uh, the problem is I don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Don't Whatever worry, John I do. says but is I, the I'm answer. But I have to assume John. Will know. Oh, the fact that you know that off offhand is brilliant. <laughs> Um, 9,123 here's what I wrote oh you liar I can't believe I got it right (laughs) I'm so glad I went second well I guess we're still tied well we'll we're, we're call that a draw then shall we well done Fair I think you, it's for you, the best you both know each other disturbingly well yeah give us another 20 Sickening. years yeah we'll start forgetting everything <laughs> Well, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, our first ever interview episode on our Roman podcast. Don't worry, you'll get it right next time. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been great fun. Um, thank you, guys. Keep keep doing the sagas. I'm enjoying them. And if you're <laughs> listening and you've not listened to the sagas, but you've just listened to a quiz all about them, yes. then go and listen to Saga Thing, and all this will make a lot more sense. Come back. And if you don't I, listen I, to Talos Rankium, um, you aren't listening to this, so I shan't bother recommending it. But uh, otherwise, enough. good on you. Yeah. They're excellent. I, I would just like to say as well, uh, during the recording, I went on to Amazon and I bought myself a copy of the Viking Sagas. Oh, oh, wonderful. A, a selection, not all of them, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But... <laughs> I think you'll be yeah. very oh, happy Let's not go out of control purchase. here. <laughs> yeah. See, there you go. <laughs> You've achieved something. Excellent. Doing this. We've made a convert. Great. Great. Okay. I'm glad we were so entertaining that you were uh, shopping while we were... <laughs> <laughs> well, I killed the time, you know. This is a common thing when we're recording. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> right, okay. Thank you very much then. Thank you guys. Great pleasure. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Saga thing, Vikings. Northern barbarians? 
Northern Barbarians. Explained. Explained. Norsemen. Men of the North. The Norse perspective. The Norse perspective. <laughs> Inspector Norse. <laughs> <laughs> Who the hell are these hairy men? Who the hell are these hairy men? Check out the beard on that guy. One of those squares in the distance. Oh, damn, it's the Vikings. You pick one. One. One of those will be the <laughs> episode title. <laughs>